case is submitted. We'll hear argument next in number 90-5319, Paul McNeil v. Wisconsin. Spectators are admonished to rock. You may proceed whenever you're ready. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the relevant facts in this case are not in dispute. I would like to outline them briefly and then propose three scenarios that support McNeil's proposed rule that a defendant who requests or appears with counsel at an initial appearance may not be questioned by police while he remains in continuous custody unless the defendant initiates that interrogation. The defendant was taken into custody on May 13, 1987, in Omaha. That was pursuant to a Milwaukee, Wisconsin, warrant and complaint for an armed robbery which had occurred in the Milwaukee jurisdiction. He waived extradition. On May 20, after being held in continuous custody in Omaha, he was taken into custody by two Milwaukee deputy sheriff detectives. At the time that they took him into custody, they advised him of his Miranda rights from a written text which is used by the sheriff's department. That's in the appendix, and one of the rights read to him was, if you cannot afford to hire a lawyer, one will be appointed to represent you at public expense before or during any questioning, if you so choose. McNeil refused to make a statement at that time and did not request counsel. He was accompanied by officers that day in a search of Omaha for a co-defendant, which was unsuccessful. On May 21, McNeil was transferred to the Omaha airport for conveyance back to Milwaukee. During that transportation, Detective Smikowski of the Milwaukee Sheriff's Department advised McNeil that it would be to his advantage if he would tell his side of the story referring to the armed robbery and to a homicide investigation which was taking place involving a Milwaukee County sheriff by the name of Butts and the Caledonia Police Department, which is part of Racine County, a separate jurisdiction from Milwaukee County. Smikowski, after advising McNeil that it would be in his interest to cooperate and tell his side of the stories, was met by silence from the part of McNeil. He did not make any statements concerning either of those offenses. McNeil was returned to Milwaukee on the evening of the 21st. The following morning, May 22, which was a Friday, he was brought before a court commissioner, a judicial officer, and with him at that time was a public defender. When McNeil appeared at the initial appearance, he was advised of the penalties for armed robbery. He acknowledged it by saying, I do, when he was asked if he understood, and those were the only words he spoke at that initial appearance. Bail was set at $25,000, and a preliminary examination was set. That's the appearance of May 22 that's set forth in the Joint Appendix at page 8? That's correct, Justice Kennedy. Is it the practice in this State for magistrates to advise suspects generally of their rights? I see that wasn't done here. No. Unfortunately, because of the crush of cases in Milwaukee County, sometimes the niceties of informing defendants of their full panoply of rights, which they might get from a judicial officer, 
from a federal magistrate do not take place. Is there any requirement in the Wisconsin statutes that this yes. be done by the uh, arraigning officer? There are requirements, but one of the requirements does not include, uh, let me rephrase that, the magistrate is not required to advise the defendant of his right to remain silent at that initial appearance, unlike uh, under Rule 5 in the federal system. Uh, the magistrate is supposed to advise the defendant of the charges against him, of his right to counsel, to set bail, uh, his right to a preliminary examination. And uh, if you'll look at the text of that initial appearance, you'll notice that there's really a colloquy that goes on between uh, defense counsel and the magistrate, and the only participation of the defendant is to acknowledge uh, what he's been charged with. Uh, the, to push that a little further, Your Honor, uh, the public defender has a meeting with uh, the defendants in Milwaukee County prior to their appearance at the initial appearance, albeit a perfunctory meeting in a small room uh, off to the side. Uh, and we can presume that that occurred before the appearance before the uh, magistrate. Uh, after uh, this uh, exchange took place, McNeil was returned to the Milwaukee County Jail, where he was held continuously until that evening at 7.55 p.m., when Detective Butts of the Milwaukee Sheriff's Department went to see McNeil for the purposes of interrogating him about the armed robbery and, according to his testimony, possibly the homicide. Keep in mind that Detective Butts had been involved in a homicide investigation from another jurisdiction, that is, Racine County, because he had informants, apparently, that led him to believe that McNeil was involved in that Racine homicide. As a result, Detective Butts was in communication with police authorities from Racine County concerning that homicide. So when he went to see McNeil that evening at 7.55 p.m. in the Milwaukee County Jail, I think we can say to a certainty that he went there to speak to him about the armed robbery and the homicide. When he arrived, he again read from the standard Milwaukee County Sheriff Department text concerning Miranda rights, which is in the appendix. At this time, uh, McNeil uh, signed a waiver of his rights and said to uh, Butts, I suppose you want to talk about that thing in Caledonia. And, of course, Butts said yes, and they had a conversation about the Caledonia homicide, didn't discuss the armed robbery, and at that time, McNeil gave a statement that was totally exculpatory. Uh, Detective Butts testified that he informed McNeil that he wasn't satisfied with what he had been told and that he would return. He returned two days later on a Sunday in the early evening hours with a representative of the Caledonia Department who had primary jurisdiction of the homicide together with between three or four city of Milwaukee, not county of Milwaukee, city of Milwaukee detectives from the homicide division with expertise in the area of homicide interrogation. Did the robbery take place in the city of Milwaukee? It took place in a suburb called West Allis, a city adjacent to Milwaukee but part of Milwaukee County, which gave jurisdiction to the sheriff's department. Uh, ordinarily, you'd think that maybe West Allis police would be involved, uh, but because it was in the county, the sheriff was. And that's how Butts got involved in the homicide, apparently in developing his investigation of the armed robbery. He received information uh, concerning the homicide, passed it on to Caledonia and remained active. And the homicide had occurred in Caledonia and Racine County? That's correct. That's correct. Uh, on the 24th, after five hours of, approximately five hours of meeting in the early, or the early to late evening with these various agencies, uh, McNeil made a statement uh, that was 
heavily inculpatory, partially exculpatory. Uh, Butts was still not satisfied, said he was going to come back again, and he returned two days later on a Tuesday again with approximately three or four officers, took another statement after approximately an hour and a half, which he felt was sold up the case, let's say. Uh, consequent, or subsequent to that, Racine County issued a, a homicide warrant on May 27th, and uh, Mr. McNeil was transferred from the Milwaukee facility to Racine, where he was subsequently uh, arraigned, uh, and subsequently, after uh, various motions to suppress the statements which I've alluded to were denied, uh, he entered pleas to charges of second-degree murder, uh, attempted murder, and armed burglary. Uh, after that, uh, motions were brought to bring to the trial court's attention uh, the, <clears throat> the Seventh Circuit case of Espinoza versus Fairman, uh, which I don't think it's necessary for me to go into facts except to say that there's a tremendous similarity between the two fact situations. And at that time, uh, Fairman uh, held that uh, the kinds of statements that had been developed in McNeil should have been suppressed. The trial court felt that even if that case had been brought to its attention during the pending case, it would have, had the ma- it would have made the same decision that the statements needn't have been suppressed. Uh, the case was then appealed to the intermediate appeals level in Wisconsin, uh, who certified to the Wisconsin Supreme Court because they felt there was no applicable Wisconsin law. The Wisconsin Supreme Court, uh, after full briefing and oral argument, felt that when McNeil appeared at the initial appearance, it was purely a Sixth Amendment right to counsel that he had invoked when he appeared with counsel. They used the word transmutation, and they said that it is not possible to transmutate the Sixth Amendment into the Fifth Amendment. And the reasoning was that they felt that uh, there was no interrogation taking place at the initial appearance, and in the absence of interrogation, you cannot invoke your Fifth Amendment right. Your Honor, we believe that there's three scenarios that support the rule that we're proposing. The first is, if Mr. McNeil, when he was confronted by the Milwaukee sheriffs in Omaha on May 20th, 1987, had, after being advised of his rights, said, I want an attorney, I don't think we'd be here today. And I think the state and the United States would agree under the Edwards and Roberson doctrines. The second scenario is when the police uh, from Milwaukee uh, approached Mr. McNeil if he Sui Sponti, without being informed by the police of his Miranda rights, had said, I want an attorney. I don't think we would be here today. None of those, neither of those scenarios happened, did they? Absolutely not, Judge. They did not. What did happen was an invocation of right to counsel with a variation in time and a variation in place. The difference is, is that McNeil waited until he was in Milwaukee to have counsel, and it took place at an initial appearance. And uh, we have built our case, Your Honor, around the Edwards-Roberson doctrine as amplified by Michigan versus Jackson. There is a footnote which appears uh, uh, in our briefs, footnote 7, where in Jackson this court said that jurists may understand the subtle distinctions between the Fifth and Sixth Amendment 
But when an average person invokes his right to counsel, he does not know which constitutional right his invocation rests upon. All he knows when he invokes his right to counsel, whether it's in front of a magistrate or a police officer, is that he needs the assistance of counsel to stand between him and his adversaries, be they the prosecutor or the police. So that's suppose a suspect, after being advised of his rights, says, I want a counsel, I want an attorney, but I'm pleased to talk with you now. Well, I think that uh, if, if we take Connecticut versus uh, Barrett, uh, which uh, ampl- really doesn't amplify, it restates the rule in Jackson that the uh, request for counsel should be given a broad rather than a narrow interpretation, uh, and that, uh, if a, that if there's a plain meaning to the uh, defendant's invocation, we don't have to move to that type of interpretation. Therefore, as in Connecticut and Barrett, where the person said, I'll give you an oral statement, but I want a counsel for a written statement, the court said, well, that's plain on its face. We don't have to interpret that. So if a suspect says, I want an attorney, but I want to talk to you, the plain meaning there would be, I want to talk to you. But if he said, I want an attorney, uh, I think that you have to stop right there uh, because you have to give it its broadest interpretation. Uh, that's not the scenario in this case, Your Honor. Uh, the scenario in this case is, is that uh, the defendant appeared in court with his counsel, uh, and uh, I think that his mere appearance... Well, the principle is that the mere request for or invocation of uh, right to counsel is not, in all respects, tantamount to an exercise of your Fifth Amendment rights. Well, if I understand the question, uh, Justice Kennedy, it's where you have uh, this issue of how do you interpret that invocation. And uh, I guess I'm going back to Connecticut versus Barrett, where the invocation of counsel is plain on its face as to what it is. It isn't necessary to interpret it. Uh, It's where there's ambiguity that you have to interpret. And when you have to interpret, this Court has said you give it a broad interpretation when you're talking about the request for counsel. Now, the state of Wisconsin... Uh, has argued that uh, the plain meaning of an appearance with uh, a defendant at an initial appearance is that it's the Sixth Amendment. But Jackson says that that's not so clear, that when a, a defendant appears at an initial appearance, he doesn't know whether it's the Fifth or Sixth Amendment. He wants counsel. Therefore, the broad interpretation of Jackson, because it's ambiguous. That's not like the defendant appearing at the initial appearance and saying, Judge, yes, I want a lawyer just for this charge and only for this charge, and I don't need his help uh, when I'm but what, uh, by police. How did, how did the lawyer get in the picture here? He was a public defender, Your Honor. And uh, uh, what the, the procedure in Wisconsin is, is that the public defender has an obligation to interview all persons brought into custody before they make an initial appearance to ascertain whether or not they're indigent. If the person is indigent and wants them to appear with uh, with them, they will appear. Does, that have to, does it have to be shown that the, that the indigent wants the lawyer to appear with him? It doesn't have to appear on the record, but the public defender will not appear with someone who does not want counsel or says to them, I will get my own counsel. Then that person will appear at the initial appearance by themselves. The public defender may say at that time, uh, this individual want, is going to get their own attorney. We're not involved in the case. That's not on the record, though, Your Honor. I want to make that clear. I'm not presenting it as though it's part of the record. Mr. Luck, what, what happens under your theory if, uh, if a defendant uh, requests counsel, he's given counsel, and then uh, he's released on bail, and while he's out on bail, he commits another crime. He's arrested, he's brought in, 
waives his Miranda rights and confesses. He's in big trouble. Why, why is that? Because of the Would, wouldn't your custody. theory protect him? No, because under Roberson, this court required, it's my understanding, continuous custody. It's when a break dealing, in the custody. It's a break sense. in the custody. And Suppose uh, he stabs somebody while he's in custody, and can they question him about that incident? No. He's invoked his right to counsel between himself and the that, police. That doesn't he, break, that doesn't break no, the... No, uh, he's still in custody. Uh, we see the magic formula as being in custody, having invoked your right to counsel, uh, and being interrogated. Those are the three requirements for our rule. If you take away any of those three requirements, our rule fails, and we think that that rule falls within Roberson. What did the defendant actually do in this case uh, to invoke his right to counsel? He, he had an appearance before a magistrate in, right. in Milwaukee County. And uh, did he say anything at that time? No. The record is silent on that, and that's where we see the ambiguity. The United States has suggested that they agree with us that an individual can invoke his right to Miranda in a non-custodial, uh, I'm sorry, in a non-interrogation setting. Much as this court said in, uh, uh, I believe it was the Chief Justice who wrote that opinion in Michigan versus Harvey, that it's recognized that you can invoke that right in a non-interrogation setting. They simply say that McNeil didn't do it. And we're saying that they're disregarding the principle in Jackson that when a person appears before a magistrate and invokes his right to counsel, he doesn't know whether it's the Fifth or Sixth Amendment. Therefore, the court has to give a broad interpretation to that. Well, but Michigan against Jackson didn't specifically left open the question that's here, did it not? It left absolutely left open the Fifth Amendment because the Michigan court had found in in its proceedings that the Fifth Amendment had been waived. This court specifically said that they don't have to reach that because of the Sixth Amendment. But that didn't prevent this court from using a Fifth Amendment analysis, uh, just like it didn't prevent this court from using a Fifth Amendment analysis in Patterson. Because basically this court has said we're going to get away from the artificiality of saying this right to counsel comes from the Fifth Amendment, this uh, right to counsel comes from the Sixth well, Amendment. What's artificial about that? It has two different sources. Um, M- Miranda was uh, not dependent on the Sixth Amendment at all. It was dependent on its entirely different amendment. Well, except it, it they created a right of counsel, more or less out of whole cloth. Right, but it, but it also used a Sixth Amendment analysis for waiver. Just as in Patterson, you used a Fifth Amendment analysis for waiver in the Sixth Amendment context. Don't you, don't you think the basis for saying that uh, in the Miranda context, uh, that uh, when the, when the uh, uh, suspect invokes his right to counsel, uh, don't you infer from that... Uh, uh, that uh, he is saying, I don't feel competent to be interrogated without counsel. I think that's, that's, how, the, that's, how, that's the basis for the rule. That, uh, that, that's how Edwards uh, rolls, Your Honor. Yeah. That's correct. That's how it rolls. But we may, and, and, and that's the basis for saying the, the, uh, the uh, police can't go back to him at any time without, his, without he being asked to do so because he, they know that he just doesn't feel confident. But do you think you can make that same inference from just the fact of appearing in court with a lawyer? Yes. Uh, I think that much... You have to inf- say yes, I mean, if to win the case, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I base that not just on, on the necessity to say yes, but on the practicalities of the criminal well, the system. Well, p- the public defender goes to him and, and, uh, and talks to him and says, do you want me to appear with you? Uh, it might help you out a little. And uh, he says, sure. 
Well, I, Your Honor, I don't think it's quite like that where he says it might help you out a little bit. He says that you have a right to counsel, uh, and mm-hmm. if you can't afford counsel, we're going to represent you. And uh, it puts that defendant in the same position as the individual He says, well, I want you to represent me. You want me to represent me. We don't know, Judge, and that's why footnote 7 in Jackson is so important, because of that ambiguity. Because what we're faced with when the United States agrees that that invocation can take place at the initial appearance is going to be a colloquy between the magistrate and the defendant. Well, what do you mean now? Do you you want this attorney uh, for your Fifth Amendment rights as well as your Sixth Amendment rights? Because it's what's going to happen, Judge, uh, I'm sorry, Justice White, is that defense counsel throughout this country are going to learn, (laughs) I'm the train where I do most of my work, Your Honor, Uh, what's going to happen is defense counsel throughout this country who who keep up with the case law are going to start telling their clients and the magistrates he's invoking his Fifth Amendment rights, no one can come and talk to him or her. The only ones who are not going to be able to do that are those uh, defendants who don't appear with counsel. And then we're going to have the situation of people raising the issue later, well, I meant to invoke my Fifth Amendment right. What the United States has proposed is, is that, yes, this can happen at the initial appearance, but we're going to put the burden on the defendant to show that he meant to invoke his Fifth Amendment rights. And we say that's contrary to Jackson, which is the burdens on the state, and that the courts are mandated to give a broad interpretation to the request for counsel, not a narrow one. Your Honor, we recognize that uh, we are proposing uh, uh, a new rule to the extent that the rule that we're proposing uh, is in the context uh, which has not arisen before this Court before. But we don't think it's a radical departure. I think that uh, uh, Justice Scalia in his dissent uh, in Minnick noted that the request for counsel at uh, the Jackson situation is a general request for counsel. And when you combine the force of that general request with the rules developed in Edwards versus Roberson, uh, we feel that we're falling within the logical meaning of those cases when they're read together. Uh, Your Honor, to... I guess the court didn't agree with me in minutes. <laughs> it, was, it was a dissent. I know. <laughs> uh, Your Honor... The United States has recognized in their own brief uh, the general principles that I have laid out for the court, uh, and uh, I think that uh, the only difference is they're saying that these, should, these situations should be examined on a case-by-case basis instead of the rule that we're proposing, which is a bright-line rule. Our bright-line rule is in direct uh, distinction to, or contradistinction to the state's proposed bright-line rule. They have proposed to this court that the court forbid a defendant from invoking his Fifth Amendment rights at an initial appearance. It's the contrary of our rule. Uh, and the United States, it seems to me, falls somewhere in between that. And uh, we feel that under Jackson, the Wisconsin proposed rule that the Fifth Amendment right cannot be invoked in the, uh, at the initial appearance has no foundation in the jurisprudence of this court. And we feel that our bright line rule meets the requirements set out in Edwards and Roberson and Minnick for that matter and fulfills all the needs, in fact, has less impact on law enforcement than those decisions did. And uh, we would ask the court 
to reverse McNeil. And why, uh, why should your rule apply to interrogation uh, on a different uh, offense that uh, this counsel is not uh, involved in? Because that invocation of counsel, because it's ambiguous and may involve the Fifth Amendment, is not investigation specific any more than the invocation of counsel under Roberson, as this mm-hmm. Court found. It's not investigation specific. Well, but when he appears on a particular charge uh, and simply stands mute, the, the court appoints counsel to defend him on that charge, doesn't it? If he wants counsel, that's correct. Yeah. But when so why do you say it's not in crime-specific or investigation-specific? Because there's nothing from the defendant to indicate that. Well, the, the, the defendant has, has said absolutely nothing. That's right. So it isn't up to the defendant to decide. It's up to the court to decide what the appointment constitutes. It's up to the defendant, Your Honor, did you say? No. If the defendant has said nothing at the, at the uh, arraignment, right. then to decide what, what the uh, scope of the appointment of counsel is surely depends on the court if the defendant has done nothing. Well, I don't — I respectfully disagree. I don't think that the court in that situation is deciding what the scope of the defendant's need for counsel is. When the defendant appears with counsel, whether it's retained, whether some attorney walks in, or whether it's a public defender, I don't think is relevant. Uh, I, I want to make sure I say that. Well, if you say that, uh, if you say that appearing with counsel justifies an inference that uh, I don't uh, justifies an inference that he's saying that I am not competent to deal with the police except with counsel. That's correct. I suppose it goes to any offense. That's right. That's At least that's your argument. That's my argument. I'd like to reserve my remaining time. Very well, Mr. Locke. Uh, Mr. Becker, we'll hear now from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, before I proceed to the argument that I prepared to present this morning, I think I want to clear up one thing uh, with respect to our position. Uh, Mr. Locke asserts that our position would forbid uh, an invocation of the Fifth Amendment right to counsel, which would thereby trigger the Edwards rule, at a court appearance on a charged offense. I think that mischaracterizes our position, and and, and in in making that characterization of our our position, he attempts to drive a wedge between our position and the position of the um, Solicitor General appearing on behalf of the United States. Um, Our position, I think, and the Solicitor General's position, really, those two positions are identical. All we're saying is that if a defendant makes an appearance with an attorney at a hearing on a charged offense, he does not thereby, or as I think uh, is is stated in the brief of the uh, Solicitor General, he does not, by that fact alone, invoke his Fifth Amendment right to counsel so as to trigger the Edwards rule. We are not suggesting that a defendant could not if he clearly stated, I am not comfortable in dealing with the police in a custodial interrogation situation, and I want an attorney present whenever I am interrogated, we're not suggesting that that kind of a request could not come at any stage uh, of his uh, being in custody, whether that be um, uh, when he's uh, in, in the custody of police officers or when he's in court. And I suppose his lawyer who's with him could say, ask him... Uh and by the way, I am your counsel uh, here, and uh, uh, do you 
do you expect to do you want to have counsel at any other time the police may want to interrogate you and he says yes would that be enough I suppose he could do that. I suppose that could be done. I don't know that that is going to end up being the practice if this court rules in favor of the state in, in, uh, in this case, but I suppose that could be done. I think there might still remain a question as to whether or not that would invoke the protection of Edwards, because I'm not so sure, I'm not so sure that that really sends the message that needs to be sent to trigger the Edwards rule. It seems the message that needs to be sent is a message from the defendant himself that knowing that he's about to be subjected to what this court has characterized as the inherently coercive pressures of custodial interrogation, he does not feel comfortable um, um, in dealing with the police single-handedly in that situation. And I think that really is a message that, that we have to... Uh, Let me be sure I understand you. You're saying to me that if the lawyer said to him, would you feel comfortable without a lawyer if you have any interrogation in custody, and he answered yes, or he answered no, uh, that wouldn't do it? You can't, you can't do it by responding to a question from his lawyer? Well, I guess I wouldn't go that far. I don't see that situation uh, arising. I would assume if we decide the case your way, public defenders will routinely, when they make a public appearance like that, ask their clients that very question. I think that's well, really I'm, what's at stake in this case, if, uh, is to what procedure will lawyers follow in the future at, at procedures such as this? Well, I'm not so sure, because I'm not so sure that a, that a defense attorney sees his obligation, or a public defender or a private attorney who is representing a person on a specific charge defense sees his job as extending beyond the representation on that charge defense to protecting his client uh, in, in any other situations to well, which... Do you he- suppose this public defender, if they started to question him on the second offense, he said, can I call a lawyer and ask him? You called up that public defender and he said, well, I'm only representing you on charge A and I won't talk to you? And is that the way your public defender's office works? That may well that may well be because I'm not so sure that the public defender has any uh, obligation to be providing or any maybe perhaps even any right to be providing representation uh, absent the uh, the, the uh, filing of the charges. The public defender's representation is is, is to provide the representation. Well, then that if it, that's the case, it shouldn't really matter. Oh, I see what you're saying. I, mean, I, right, I think I the, the obligation that we're trying to fulfill with our public defender system is the. Um, providing the, the representation that is required by the Sixth Amendment. And there is no Sixth Amendment uh, right to counsel well, at interrogation. A, that if, the, if the defendant himself uh, appeared and he said, by the way, Judge, I want everybody to know that uh, uh, I don't want the police interrogating me about anything uh, in the future without my having a lawyer. He didn't say that in response to a lawyer's question, but he just, he's, a, he's, a, he's been there before, so he... Uh, he knows he should say it, and he says it. Well, I don't know that he knows he should say it. Um, uh, I, I think I would have to concede that if that happened, that that would have to be an, that would be an invocation of the Fifth even, Amendment. Even if he didn't say Fifth Amendment. Well, no, I, no, I realize that. But if, but if he says that I'm, I'm uncomfortable with custodial interrogation about any crime, and I'm not just concerned about this crime that I'm, I'm appearing before you on, this, as a practical matter, though, that doesn't occur. I mean, defendants now know that they have, many defendants know that they have rights to silence and rights to counsel, but they aren't standing up at court appearances and invoking those rights because they know the appropriate place to invoke those rights is when the, when the, when the uh, situation requires it, i.e., when the police administer the Miranda warnings uh, in anticipation of um, uh, beginning interrogation. But you don't suppose that if you follow your rule, I have to back off the notion of questioning, but the lawyer might not advise him that it would be in your best interest to make this statement to the court during the hearing? 
and then they go ahead and make the statement. Don't you think that would happen rather frequently in the future if we adopt your rule? Or you think counsel probably figure that's ultra virus and you never give the give the I, I, that I think that, and I also really have a serious question whether or not, if, if if that were to turn out to be the practice, whether this court could really feel that that ought to be the kind of request for an attorney's representation at at uh, custodial interrogation that that ought to be the kind of request that triggers the Edwards rule. As I indicated earlier, it seems to me that what we really, what really ought to trigger Edwards and what the record really ought to clearly show is that a defendant basically on his own has come to that conclusion. I don't know that a defendant prompted by defense counsel really raises the kind of concern. Giving him this unusual advice that you probably are not competent to deal with the police on your own. He, 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 well. well, but that's advice that is, I think, contrary to, to I think, what, what, what underpins Miranda and Edwards and all the rest, and that is that the defendant generally is competent to deal with the police on his own and to make that decision as to whether or not he can handle custodial interrogation without an attorney present or whether or not he does feel those inherently coercive pressures that the court talked about in Miranda and has talked about in every Miranda decision since. Well, the end, uh, the end result of your argument is, is that if, the, if I, I think you can see that the magistrate here didn't go through the full panoply of what usually gone through. No, he went through the full panoply of what usually goes through, what is usually gone through uh, in Wisconsin. Because all that Wisconsin basically requires is what went on here, and that is that the uh, judge is to inform the defendant of the charge, uh-huh. of his right to counsel. He didn't have to do that because he all had right, counsel. All right, he advised him of the, they, they say you have the right to counsel? Sure. And the fellow says, and by the way, I, I certainly want counsel, and I don't want to be interrogated about anything without counsel being present. And the judge says, awfully sorry, but uh, all that, uh, th- that will be true in, with respect to this charge. But I have no authority, and you have no authority, to keep the police away from you with respect to any other charge. I would think that's the end of your, that, that's exactly what you have to be arguing. No, I, I, what, I, what I'm arguing is that, number one, the scenario that you paint, I don't think is going to ever, is, is going to occur. I mean, we don't, we don't see it now. I don't know why we should see it after this case arises. A defendant is fully capable of exercising that right when the time comes to exercise it, i.e., when the police begin their questioning. Um, so, well, so I don't think it's going to answer my question. Suppose the judge says that. No, I don't think the judge is going to say that because I think perhaps in that situation where a defendant, not coached by a, an, an attorney, uh, uh, but but truly because he feels that he's incapable of dealing with custodial interrogation without an attorney, makes that assertion in the context of a court hearing, I think that would have to be... And then the police should not... Uh, go then the police should not interrogate. Should stay away from him. Then the police should stay away from him. I don't see that situation arising. It hasn't arisen so far, and I don't think that that's going to arise in the, in the future. And I think that, that basically I think what this court has to do is to, is to reach the right result in this case on the basis of its prior precedent... And, and adopt the rule that properly reflects the law, and then if it turns out that there are ways in which smart defense attorneys can somehow manipulate that rule so as to um, uh, perhaps arguably get around it, then this court is going to have to, down the road, be confronted with the question of whether or not we're going to allow that kind of manipulation. Um, but I think we have to take this one step at a time, and I don't think it is any reason not to adopt a rule I don't understand. I didn't know we were adopting rules. I, you know, I, I really thought we were dealing here with constitutional rights. I mean, there, 
You talk as though we're we're writing some code of procedure year by year. You know, we'll just write a new a new section later on if this doesn't work. Is that what we're doing? I think to a large extent that when you're when we're in the area of the prophylactics rights that have been developed under Miranda, your description comes very close to what this court is doing. It adopts the Edwards rule. It then proceeds to adopt uh, the Michigan versus Jackson rule, saying Edwards now applies in the Sixth Amendment context. It then in Roberson has to decide how far Edwards uh, goes with respect to uncharged offenses. Now it's being asked to decide whether or not the Jackson situation should also trigger the Roberson rule. Um, I, I, th- I think probably... Enough, you enough. You persuaded me. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I think you've, you, you've hit on something, though, here. Is what we're, what, what's really being requested here is an extension of a prophylactic rule. And I think that when, when we're talking about that, that really there's some burden that is on the person who is seeking that extension to justify it. And um, while I don't think it's possible in the time that I have remaining here in my argument probably to, to, to fully develop the, the, the question, it seems to me that in, in deciding whether or not uh, there is um, uh, a showing has been made, uh, that the rule should be extended um, so that... Uh, Edwards-Roberson uh, Edwards rule uh, should apply in this situation where the request for counsel comes not in the context of custodial interrogation, but rather in the context of a court appearance, that the, um, and, and when that request for counsel then is going to bar interrogation with respect to uncharged offenses, I think that what this court has to do is basically a, a cost-benefit analysis. And I don't think that once you weigh the costs against the benefits that you really uh, will find a persuasive case made for the extension that is being sought. And in that regard, I, I'd like to address the two, the two prongs of that analysis, the costs and the benefits of an extension of the um, Edwards-Roberson rule to the present situation. The costs we would submit would be exceedingly high. As a practical matter, what you would be basically holding is once a defendant is charged with a crime, he is, from that point on, off-limits to police-initiated interrogation as long as he remains in custody, and he's off-limits to police-initiated interrogation not only with respect to that charged crime, but also with respect to any other crimes. And why do I say that? I say that because almost immediately after a charge is made, you're going to have an invocation of uh, the right to counsel. Uh, and you're going to have that invocation in one of two ways. You're either going to have it the way it was done here, where you have a public defender system in place that basically provides uh, attorneys who will make an appearance at the initial court proceeding, uh, and that will obviously have to be deemed an invocation of the, of, of the right to counsel. Or you will have the situation that you have in other states where you do not have a um, public defender system in place necessarily, or the public defender does not arrive on the scene quite as quickly as he does in Wisconsin, uh, where you will have a court making inquiry at initial appearance as to the defendant's wishes with regard to counsel, which will, in the normal course, it would seem, seem to me, evoke a request for counsel. And so, as a practical matter, as I indicated, what you're going to be doing is you're going to be saying that as soon as a defendant is charged with uh, a crime, he's going to become off-limits for police-initiated interrogation with respect to any offense. You mean off-limits without advising counsel? Exactly, exactly. And obviously I'm speaking a little bit in shorthand here against the backdrop of all the decisions. They're obviously, if they are ready to provide counsel um, uh, and have counsel present at the, at the interrogation, the interrogation could proceed. Um, now, why do I think... Assuming counsel advises them to uh, proceed. 
interrogation. Which, as I think you pointed out, uh, Justice uh, Scalia, quoting from Justice Jackson's earlier opinion, uh, that isn't very likely to, to happen. Um, and I, when I say you pointed out, I'm talking about your dissent in Minnick. Um, the, um, now, why do I think that that's going to be a, a, have a detrimental uh, impact on effective law enforcement? Well, I think we all know, I think common sense and, and, and experience teach, teach us uh, that as um, Justice uh, Kennedy pointed out in his dissent in, in Roberson, uh, it, is, it is not a rare situation that a defendant charged with one offense is a suspect with regard to other offenses. And if you need some kind of empirical data to support that, I would suggest that you go and read, if you haven't done so already, the brief amicus filed by the Illinois Attorney General's Office. I, do, I think they do a marvelous job of showing just what kind of an impact, um, or, or, or just how often, rather, this kind of a situation arises and how often it arises in very serious cases, because the defendants are arrested for some th- very often for very petty crimes, but as a result of investigation, they, uh, they, are, um, uh, they become suspects relatively quickly in, in very serious crimes. Um, and, and I think the situation... I suppose you could always get around the, the rule uh, um, sought by, by the defendant here if, if you, you just let him out for a day on the petty crime and then re-arrest him on the more serious one. Well, he'd get counsel right away on that one, too, wouldn't he? Well, not necessarily. If you, if you arrested him for purposes of interrogation uh, and didn't, um, didn't bring him before the court, you'd have a certain... There'd be a little leeway in there. Um, yes, in this very case, as I remember the facts, they were already investigating him on the second crime. And if they arrest him on the minor offense first in order to get him into custody where they can interrogate him more effectively on the second crime, then it's advantageous for law enforcement purposes to be able to do that without having to notify counsel. That's what they do, as I understand it. They invest him on the less serious offense, bring him into custody, and then you want to question him on the more serious offense, which was under investigation at the time of the first arrest. That's a typical that scenario, some, too. Yeah, it? I think that is sometimes the, the, the scenario. Um, well, unless uh, if they let him out, well, they certainly couldn't interrogate him uh, if he didn't want to be interrogated uh, without, a, without probable cause to arrest him. That's true. That's true. I mean, they'd have, to, they'd have to have probable cause to arrest him on that second offense, on which he may be nothing more than a suspect, um, which, of course, raises the whole problem of whether or not it's not in the defendant's interest, perhaps, to, have, to, to be questioned about these other crimes that he's sus- suspected of, because he may be able to clear himself of all suspicion. Um, the, uh, the, and the situation in that regard, by the way, that a, that, a, that a suspect charged with one offense may well turn out to be a, or a person charged with one offense may turn out to be a suspect in other offenses, I think is only going to become exacerbated as we see the, the, with the advent of these computerized fingerprint matching systems, which I think are going to result in even more cases um, in which we are able to, as a result of arrest on one charge and bringing those charges before the court, we are going to find out that this fellow may have been involved in other activity about which we would want to question him. Um, and what the, what the defendant's proposed extension of, of the Edwards rule would do then would be, in this kind of a situation that I have described, would be to bar what this court has labeled absolutely essential activity in the enforcement of our criminal laws. The essential activity being non-coercive, uh, questioning in counsel's absence uh, with a view toward obtaining uh, a, a voluntary statement uh, where the defendant uh, admits his guilt of, of, of the crime uh, of which he's suspected. Now, that interference might be tolerable if there was a significant benefit to be gained by the extension of the rule uh, that the defendant proposes. Um, and uh, our position would be that there really is not much of a benefit. The Edwards rule is, is designed to protect against police badgering. 
Um, I think the apparent concern of this Court, uh, it was certainly the concern that Justice Kennedy identified as the apparent concern of this Court in, a, in his uh, dissent in Roberson, is that if you, if you go ahead and interrogate the guy after he's requested an attorney, uh, and we're talking about a situation in Edwards where he requested an attorney during the course of custodial interrogation. If you go ahead and reinitiate interrogation, the defendant is going to wonder, do I really have a right to counsel? I mean, I, didn't I invoke this right? Why didn't that result in something? Why isn't that attorney here now uh, to assist me? Why are they starting this questioning over again? Um, I don't think that describes how a defendant would view the situation when he has appeared in court with counsel on a charged offense, and then the police approach him to interrogate him with respect to a completely separate and distinct offense. I don't think he perceives that as being inconsistent with what happened there in court, because I think a normal defendant perceives that what happened there in court was that he had the, uh, an attorney to represent him on that charged offense. And, uh, and I don't think he perceives it to be inconsistent when he is questioned about completely separate and distinct uh, offenses, that, that he, he does not perceive that to be inconsistent with his appearance with counsel on a charged offense. So I don't think there is really much of a benefit to be gained. And with the terrific cost in terms of the detriment uh, on effective law enforcement, I don't think a case can be made um, uh, for an extension of the Edwards rule in the, in the manner in which the um, uh, defendant has, has requested. Thank you, Mr. Becker. Uh, Mr. Nightingale, we'll hear now from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The issue here is, is we believe, more narrow than some of the discussion has indicated. It is whether anything that happened in Petitioner's first appearance, a first appearance that is fairly typical of proceedings that occur many, many times each day around the United States, is fairly regarded as a basis for triggering Edwards' no-waiver presumption. We submit that uh, there is no basis for the uh, triggering of Edwards in this situation for two basic reasons. First, applying a presumption that an otherwise valid waiver of Miranda rights is a product of coercion is not necessary in this situation to protect the uh, individual's free exercise of his privilege against compelled uh, self-incrimination. And that, after all, is the purpose of all the Miranda rules. Secondly, uh, that uh, sort of a rule would needlessly undercut the other interest which factors into the Miranda uh, complex, and that is the public's interest in the effective uh, uh, investigation of, of uh, crimes. Would your case be a stronger one or a weaker one here if the committee magistrate had uh, advised the defendant of his Fifth Amendment rights and ask the defendant if he understood that advice? Or would the case be just the same? I'm not sure I understand, because the, the difficulty is that the magistrate follows the same procedure, regardless of whether the individual uh, is in custody or not in custody. So nothing typically occurs at a first appearance which is tailored well, I'm to the saying, situation. Would, would, would the case for the rule you propose be a better or a worse case if the arraigning magistrate had given that advice? Your Honor, if the arraigning magistrate gives that advice so that the defendant's... He just advises him in open court of his Fifth Amendment right of self-incrimination. So do you understand you don't have to talk to the police? And the suspect says, yes, I understand that. Uh, I think it would be a stronger case, because then the gentleman clearly understands 
that he has the freedom to resist the police if he so chooses. It would be uh, a protection in addition to the Miranda warnings that he will receive if and when. And if his attorney had told him the same thing, it would also be a stronger case, I take it. Uh, yes, Your Honor, I believe so. It's important, I think, to recognize that Edwards is a, is a rather extraordinary rule. It provides that an otherwise completely valid waiver of a Miranda right to counsel is rendered invalid uh, by virtue of circumstances that have occurred before. And, and for that reason, we think it's important to limit the Edwards rules to those situations in which it can fairly be said that something has occurred to cast doubt on the defendant or the suspect's ability to exercise his free choice when he is given Miranda warnings and simply asked, are you prepared to talk to us without a lawyer present? And there really is nothing that happens, happened in this case or in uh, many similar cases, that casts doubt on, uh, on Mr. McNeil's ability to make that sort of free choice. All that happened at his, his first appearance was that the case was called, the charges were explained, the defendant indicated that he understood the charges. Uh, there was a brief colloquy, a setting of bail, uh, a waiver of, the, of uh, the reading of the complaint, and the setting of a preliminary hearing. There was nothing in that proceeding that touched on what Mr. McNeil might wish to do or say if the time came when he was questioned in custody about offenses which, after all, had occurred in a different jurisdiction and were not the subject of this proceeding at all. You think we ought to judge the case uh, uh, sort of on the assumption that uh, this defendant is a lawyer? No, Your Honor, I don't. Well, I'm, but, uh, but uh, otherwise, uh, I suppose uh, it would be wrong to go back to the lawyer. Your Honor, under Michigan v. Jackson, the state will have to go through the lawyer with respect to the offenses that are charged in this case. Well, I understand case. that, but, but if the defendant himself is a lawyer and he appears with a lawyer, uh, and uh, just like this defendant did, I suppose if, uh, if uh, we rule against the state, the police can't even go back to the lawyer to interrogate him about some other crime. The effect of the rule that Petitioner advocates is that once you've appeared with a lawyer, the state can't go back to you exactly. without your lawyer present. That is the effect of the rule that Petitioner yes, argues yes, for. Yes. Uh, very definitely, Your Honor. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and certainly the, uh, there wouldn't be anything happening at, the, at a lawyer defendant's appearance that would indicate that he wouldn't be competent to deal with police by himself. That, that's correct. One would hope so. Is, is, it, is it your position that um, the police are not uh, permitted to interrogate uh, with reference to the same investigation or the same offense? Same offense. Uh, Sixth fel Amendment. Uh, felony murder, and they, he, he's given an, a, a um, well, then I guess that's both, that would be both robbery and the murder. The, the issue I think we may have some problems uh, in, in, in writing the case the way you propose uh, I don't believe he talks so. Talks about the legal elements of the offense. I don't believe so, Your Honor, because the issue that you're addressing is what the scope of the Sixth Amendment right is that's invoked by virtue of an appearance with an attorney at the first appearance. What this case involves is whether the defendant has done or said anything that justifies relieving him of uh, a subsequent valid waiver of 
Fifth Amendment rights in this case with respect to a different crime. But the case you've been addressing uh, uh, concerns the scope of the, the, the definition of the Sixth Amendment uh, right that is uh, defendants by virtue of an appearance with an attorney, not what sorts of events trigger uh, the Miranda right to counsel and more specifically the, the uh, second layer of protection, uh, the Edwards rule. Uh, there is a, a certain artificiality in discussing this case in terms of the Fifth and Sixth Amendment as such. Uh, petitioner's uh, attorney has put a good deal of emphasis on the footnote in the Jackson case that ordinarily individuals don't understand uh, the difference between the Fifth and the Sixth Amendment. And I agree, if you put the question in those terms, you may get uh, a good number of blank stares from your average criminal defendant. But, the, but if you put the question in layman's terms, do you understand the difference between being represented in a pending criminal case with respect to charges that have been brought against you by the state and uh, being represented with respect to a questioning that may or may not occur uh, with respect to uh, other offenses that may have occurred in other jurisdictions. I submit that the average defendant understands that distinction. And if asked upon leaving a first, amend, uh, first appearance, well, which right to counsel have you just enjoyed? Uh, many, if not all, would say, I've just enjoyed my right to be represented in that pending case. And taking it one step further, the fact that, let's assume there may be some people who might be somewhat confused about that. Each of these people, at a subsequent stage, is going to get a set of Miranda warnings in which he is told or she is told, uh, you have a right to an attorney during questioning. Well, what if, do you concede that uh, the, that the uh, defendant could when he's, <clears throat> when he's asked about, do you understand this right? He says, I not only understand them, but I exercise my rights under both uh, amendments. We've assumed that for purposes of the case, and because so much weight has been put on it. I know, but, you, but, but what, what is the government's position? Could he, would he be permitted to uh, exercise his rights under the fifth set of first appearance? I don't believe the Court's past cases compel that conclusion. Justice Kennedy's hypothetical poses a, a number of difficulties. Can you invoke your rights uh, with respect to questioning about offenses that may not have occurred? Uh, a, a defendant brought into custody may not get out of, out of jail, uh, in, for a good number of years, and during that period of time, he may be transferred from so place to you place. Don't, you don't know what the government's position is about that? No, I, I believe, Your Honor, that uh, thus far, this Court has restricted the Edwards rule to a narrow core set of cases, a paradigm. So, so what is the government's position? I, I believe that, uh, that a living will sort of invocation, a rote invocation of the right to the Fifth Amendment, uh, for all purposes, for all time, uh, would not necessarily be uh, regarded as uh, binding under this Court's precedence. Thank you, Mr. Nightingale. Mr. Luck, you have rebuttal. You have four minutes remaining. <clears throat> Both the United States and the State of Wisconsin, it seems to petitioner, disregard one of the fundamental purposes of Miranda, which is to deal with the question of custody and the uh, resulting coercive atmosphere that results from custody when it's put in the interrogation setting, and which this uh, court most recently recognized in Minick. Uh, the fact of the matter is that once a defendant is uh, arraigned or appears at an initial appearance and has bail set and he's indigent, 
And for all practical purposes, McNeil was never going to make bail. He was indigent and he had $25,000 bond. It's unrealistic to think that the, the continued custody doesn't work on an, an increased coercive effect on the ability to exercise the free will to speak or not to speak. He is not in the same position as a suspect in the police station who has just been arrested, who still has uh, the ability to not be charged, to go home. He already is incarcerated, no different than if he had been found guilty, except that he's awaiting trial and he has a presumption of innocence, but he's being treated like a prisoner who's already been found guilty, and he is sitting in that jail cell, and police are coming to see him on two or three different occasions. Now, Miranda recognizes that, and Miranda said that if the suspect indicates in any manner at any time prior to or during interrogation that he wishes counsel, there shall be no interrogation. Well, he indicated in a manner that he wanted counsel when he appeared at the initial appearance. As far as uh, costs and benefits are concerned, uh, it's, it's the petitioner's position that the net of Roberson and Edwards is much greater than the net of what we're talking about. If they talk about the number of individuals who have been charged, who could be interrogated in the jail because they've committed other offenses, think of all those individuals who are in the police station who have invoked their right to counsel and who cannot be questioned any further. Uh, I don't know what the statistics are, but we know it's a pyramid, uh, and the number of people who are taken into custody are not equal to the number of people who appear in court and have bail set. Uh, I think it's also unrealistic uh, to say that individuals want an opportunity to explain to the police when they're sitting in a jail cell about how they weren't involved in a particular offense. The fact of the matter is, is that this court has recognized that counsel is needed in the custodial setting as a guiding hand to assist individuals to enable them to decide whether or not they want to respond to questioning. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that defense attorneys are not uh, necessarily the manipulators that counsel indicates they are. Uh, I mean, this court is well aware that defense counsel can also serve as facilitators. When the police know that they have other crimes, they contact the district attorney who contacts the defense attorney who says, you know, we've got other information on your guy. Why don't you go talk to him? And you know something? That happens because sometimes the defense attorney can advise and consult with his client and do him more good sometimes to have him cooperate than when he tells him not to. And it's done in an orderly fashion where fundamental rights under the Constitution are abided by. And they don't take place in jail cells when the defendant's attorney are not present. Uh, finally, uh, we, we feel that the, the rule of Roberson and Edwards is really what uh, opposition is arguing against. Uh, because what we're talking about is really when counsel's invoked. And Thank you, Mr. Locke. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock. <laughs>